Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Racing News 365.com Formula One podcast. We are back in Baku for the Azerbaijan Grand Prix. And as always, I'm joined by editorial director Dieter Renkin and Asian correspondent Michael Butterworth. Dieter, hello to you. When we spoke to you last week, you were in a car somewhere in the UK and tonight you're flying to the US. Uh, yeah, indeed. Valve, uh, it's been very, very, very hectic. You're correct. I was talking to you from the services alongside the, the M1, actually. And then from there, I went to Red Bull. And then on, um, on Tuesday, I went to Aston Martin. On Tuesday evening, I had a, um, an awards evening dinner, and I was fortunate enough to be sat at the table with Adrian Newey. Got back to, to Belgium on Wednesday. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, I was at WEC. Yesterday was Azerbaijan Grand Prix. So really hectic, particularly interesting, trying to dovetail Formula One um, from Azerbaijan uh, whilst at the WEC race at Spa. So really, really hectic period. I'm having trouble keeping up with you, Dieter, so um, I'll have to know, know, your, know your whereabouts. Uh, Michael, hello to you. Uh, I watched the main race uh, of the F1 this weekend. Uh, Michael, and I don't know about you, I thought it was pretty uneventful. Yeah, I mean, it's it's it reminded me of the first time that Formula One went to Baku in 2016 when we had had a really chaotic Formula Two race and everyone thought, uh, oh God, what's going to happen in the in the Formula One race? And in, in the end, it was quite processional. This was uh, probably not an Azerbaijan Grand Prix for the ages, uh, but it'll certainly live long in the memory of Sergio Perez, a, a double winner at Baku this weekend, winning the sprint and the main Grand Prix, now just six points behind uh, Max Verstappen and the first ever repeat winner of the Azerbaijan Grand Prix. So, uh, here's hoping we've got something of a title fight on our hands. I think one of the interesting things about uh, Abaku is that generally in the past when you've had an eventful Formula 2 race, we've actually had a processional Formula 1 race and vice versa. Almost as though the guys have had a look on the Saturday and said, well, we've got to be very, very careful that we don't end up in the wall the way they have. And when it hasn't happened in the Formula 2 race, the guys haven't learned from it. And of course, we have an eventful race on Sunday. So, you know, the, the sprint race was fairly eventful on Saturday. And I'm sort of wondering whether the drivers didn't have a look at that and say, well, we we know how how um, enticing these walls can be and these barriers can be. So let's behave ourselves. And I think that probably contributed to it as well. And I think this is something at Liberty have to look at that, you know, fundamentally um, having two races, one a third as long as the other on a, a, a Grand Prix weekend, uh, you're not going to have much, much of a different outcome. We'll dissect the F1 race uh, later on in this podcast, but I want to start, Dieter, if I may, on the WEC race uh, that was at your local track in Spa this weekend. Uh, indeed it was, Belvier. Yeah, it was the uh, the six-hour of Spa, um, basically the third uh, round of seven in the in the World Endurance Championship. Uh, the next one, of course, is, is Le Mans. And I'd actually gone there uh, over the weekend to try and catch up with people to look ahead at, at the Le Mans 24-hour race. But what was very, very interesting was the manufacturer interest and also, therefore, the media interest. Um, I've actually never known the Spa Media Center that full, and I'm including Formula One here. And when I looked around, when I when I asked the people, I said, yeah, but you know, we've got all these manufacturers. We've got Peugeot and we've got Porsche and we've got Ferrari. We've got BMW coming next year. And there seems to be an awful lot of interest in this. And I think one of the um, one of the areas is that Formula One has, without through Netflix and other activities, sort of pulled motor racing up. You know, when when the tide rises, all boats rise with it. And I believe that this is also sort of 
pulled Wake up at the same time, and it was certainly a very, very interesting event. A one-two for Toyota, nothing new there, basically. Um, I think it will change, but you know, Toyota are basically at the moment the Red Bulls of of, of WEC. Yeah, I mean, I'm not the closest follower of WEC, but I can remember a few years ago. I, I think the series was maybe uh, it, it struggling a little bit, not in as rude health as we see it today, with all the manufacturer interest that you that you mentioned earlier, Dita, the likes of Peugeot, Ferrari, um, uh, BMW coming in a few years ago the, the only real interest was which Toyota is going to win and yes like you said we had a, a Toyota 1-2 at, uh, at Spa this weekend but we got all the other manufacturers coming in surely well let's hope that they can take the fight to Toyota uh, because it's really great to see so many manufacturers competing at the very top in the World Endurance Championship. Well, motor racing has always been sort of cyclical. And, you know, I, I do believe that we'll have a, a gradual changing of the guard. We had it in Formula One as well. I mean, Mercedes dominated everything. Uh, and now it seems to be Red Bull. And you have this all the way through. And I think that's certainly what's going to come there. And I think it's also pretty, pretty uh, healthy for motorsport in total that manufacturers are sort of saying, well, we'll either go WEC or we'll go Formula One. And they're sort of spreading across the two uh, senior categories. Michael mentioned the calendar earlier uh, in his response there. Dieter, you're busy writing a, a, an article on, on the calendar. I have, in fact, finished it and submitted it uh, for publication later on. Uh, and that's basically more about South Africa and, and Spa. And again, we sort of have this elastic deadline. Um, last year, we had a situation where the deadline for a South African Grand Prix deal was uh, April, then it was May, then it was June, then it was July, then it was middle of August, then it was end of August. And eventually it all came to naught. And we ended up with, uh, with going back to Spa for this year. And I believe we're going through the same sort of process. There was a deadline, which was uh, yesterday. It's now been extended again. And it's almost as though, you know, they, they're doing everything they can to edge out Spa and uh, pull South Africa into it by extending all these deadlines. And I'm, I'm so, sort of starting to wonder when is enough enough. It does nobody any favours. I believe that Spa is sitting on tenter hooks. Do we have a Grand Prix or next year or don't we have a Grand Prix next year? They've basically done everything that they can do to, to hold on uh, and, and return their Grand Prix. Uh, yet on the flip side, we have uh, South Africa sort of dragging its heels again and again and again. Being a South African living in Belgium, Dieter, you, you've got a hand in both camps. So do you think we'll have a race in South Africa? And what do you think the future of Spa will be? Well, let, let me be very, very blunt. Um, I, I'm a dual national. Um, I, I love both circuits. Uh, I've had a house that I called Kailami in the past. Uh, Kailami in Zulu means my home, so it was pretty fitting. But, you know, obviously I've chosen it because of my, my deep motor racing interest. I love Spa for obvious reasons. I'm frankly, you know, I, I would love, to, love us to have both. Very bluntly. Uh, unfortunately, the way that Liberty is structuring calendars, they're reducing races in, in Europe. They are increasing races around the rest of the world. That's all fine, particularly if we can uh, constrain the, the number of races at and contain the number of races at sort of 23, 24 maximum. That means that somebody's got to fall off. I just think it's unfortunate that probably the most iconic Grand Prix venue, namely Spa, is the one that's in the in the uh, the firing line. Um, I think that there are other events events and circuits that that should uh should be in the firing line and not spa yeah no spa is one of my uh, favorite tracks and i love i love visiting but moving on to the race we had at the weekend at the azerbaijan grand prix we had a new weekend format for friday saturday and sunday 
Yeah, um, you know, I've obviously given it a lot of thought, uh, and I spoke to Paul Stoddard earlier on about the uh, the format because he's obviously our guest columnist after every Grand Prix. It was very interesting to hear what he said. I won't preempt what he said, but basically we seem to be pretty much aligned that uh, it was a bit confusing to have the the Friday qualifying for the Sunday race. There was a gap of almost forty eight hours, which you know is a long time in Formula One, um, and so. So there was that. Secondly, you know, we had the um, the Saturday morning uh, shootout, as they call it. We had the Saturday afternoon uh, race. And frankly, when I spoke to various people, they seemed to be saying, well, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to miss one or the other. I just don't have time for all these uh, competitive events. So, you know, qualifying, qualifying, race, race. The only the only time that nobody was seemed to be watching or was interested was Friday morning, FP1. Uh, but that's that's par for the course anyway. It's a setup period. But, you know, having qualifying for the main race on Friday afternoon when people are at work, does that work? I don't think so. Yeah, there was a lot of uh, chat on social media about the, the timings of, of the weekend just gone. But one of the dramas, uh, quote unquote, Michael, that we had was a, a safety car in lap 11 with Nick DeVries. Yeah, well, we spoke on last week's podcast, didn't we, about uh, Baku, the tight confines and the unforgiving walls. There's always potential for stoppages, for safety cars, for things to be shaken up. And this uh, in the Grand Prix on lap 11, as you said, Balve, Nick DeVries went off. That brought out the safety car and that changed the course of the race because that was very bad news for Max Verstappen. He just pitted. Uh, well, I think he pitted. Red Bull pitted him. They were expecting the safety car to be deployed a little, maybe a little bit earlier than it ultimately was because by the time I think just as he was pulling out of the pit lane and, and rejoining the race was when the safety car was actually uh, was actually deployed and that played beautifully into the hands of Sergio Perez who pitted one lap later when everybody was running at the reduced pace that meant that he got ahead of Perez uh, and he got ahead of Verstappen sorry um, and but but it was it was impressive I thought from Perez the fact that he was quick enough to keep Verstappen out of out of range during the rest of the race we still had a long way to go until the checkered flag and and uh, Verstappen, it's worth noting, beat Perez at this track last year by 21 seconds. So there was a big improvement from Perez from this year to last year. He won the sprint race, as we talked about earlier as well. So a double win. And he's now just six points behind Verstappen in, in the championship standings. Uh, even before the, the safety car had been deployed, he'd closed to within DRS range of Verstappen. I don't know whether that was Verstappen just having a little bit of a rest and, you know, he would have been able to keep him at bay. Like Jeddah, We'll, we'll never know if Perez could have passed him on merit on track. But the manner in which he stayed ahead and kept Verstappen out of range was very, very impressive. Yeah, I mean, one of the, the standouts about Checo's career is that he's really, you know, to to coin the old um, Rolling Stone uh, hit phrase, uh, a street fighting man. And, you know, Checo does this very, very, very well. If we have a look at most of his victories, they've come along on street circuits, and he really is pretty good at this. We have another one coming up later on uh, next weekend, of course, Miami. We have a few more during the course of this year. We have Monaco uh, shortly. It's going to be very, very interesting to see how this dynamic unfolds between Checo, the street fighting man, and Max, the more classical racer who loves the fast, sweeping, spa-type circuits. And I think this is going to be the highlight of this year. Uh, Checo really has upped his game. He's doing a, a tremendous job. Is he quite at the max level? No, but he's right there whenever there's a slip, and that's the important thing. 
a dynamic that worked really well over the weekend, Dieter, was the Aston Martin pair of Fernando Alonso and Lance Stroll. Fernando really knows which side his toast should be buttered. He basically, uh, you know, he, he knows that he's dealing with the Stroll family. Uh, Lawrence Stroll owns the team. The uh, the younger Lance is, of course, the driver. So, you know, Fernando's doing everything out there to to play the team game. I loved it when when Lance said, uh, oh, you can tell Fernando I'm, I'm not racing him. I'm just hanging around right behind him. And basically, Fernando very nonchalantly said, oh, he can challenge me if he likes. <laughs> Uh, and I found that very, very telling. Uh, you know, Fernando's got, got talent to throw away and, you know, basically he's sharing it. And as long as it doesn't impact on his own results, he's quite happy to share it. I think that if, and it's a big if, uh, but if Lance ever gets really close to, to Fernando, I think the real Fernando elbows will come out and we'll see it all happen. It was all quite polite to Aston Martin. It's rare that you hear a driver volunteer that sort of information saying that, oh, it's, it's okay, I'm not going to attack the teammate. It's usually, you know, you usually get the engineers over the radio telling them to hold position or telling them to seed position. And they usually do that very begrudgingly because they're all very competitive and they want to finish as high up as, uh, as they can. But it was, I thought it was a very good weekend for Aston Martin. Alonso fourth and Stroll seventh. They were not the second quickest car out there today, but they, they really did a very good job of maximizing the potential of the, the AMR 23, getting the best result they possibly could. And they're going to need more weekends like that uh, if they are going to, to finish. Uh, well, it looks like they and Mercedes and Ferrari are going to be in the battle for second place in the constructors. And uh, Aston Martin are going to need more examples of this teamwork and maximizing what they can take out of a weekend as the season goes on. Absolutely. But I think there's another element here as well, that whenever a race driver says something that we find surprising, we should actually look the other way and work out why. Uh, it's also possible that that Lance was basically saying, tell Fernando I won't race him because he knew he wouldn't get past. It's a very difficult circuit to get past on. And I think that he knew he wouldn't get past. So rather than face the, the questions from the media afterwards, uh, Lance, why didn't you overtake uh, uh, Fernando? And then he'd have to explain that he couldn't. It's a lot easier. So, well, I, I said I'm not racing him so you know there it is and at the same time Fernando nonchalantly say well if he wants to he can I don't really care sort of style so it was a bit of fun but I don't think we should take it too seriously no definitely I was going to shoehorn some Taylor Swift uh, puns into the Fernando Alonso thing by I, uh, I won't do that but Michael I want to dig into something you said about the second team in Formula One who do you think it is because I was thinking about this over the weekend and I can't put my my finger on it I think that's the point, Valve. I mean, I, like I said, before the season started, what, what I want to see in Formula One is a championship where you have different drivers and different teams at different circuits with different characteristics, each being, you know, uh, better at one circuit than another. Sadly, it looks like it's going to be a Red Bull benefit at the front. But in terms of the battle for second place, earlier on in the season, it looked like it was going to be Aston Martin. Mercedes had a good race uh, at Albert Park. Ferrari were much more competitive here. Charles Leclerc obviously getting pole position. I think the fact that they, they slipped back I don't think anybody was too surprised about that. If you look at first, starting first and finishing third on paper, you think that's a bad result. But I, I think that's absolutely the maximum that Ferrari and Charles Leclerc could have achieved. And Leclerc finished a long way ahead of Carlos Sainz, who I think seems to be struggling with the car a little more uh, than Leclerc so far this year. But it'll be fascinating to see how it plays out. And uh, 
I think Ferrari will fancy their chances of being uh, the second team again next time out next weekend in Miami. We've got a circuit that's a, a fairly similar to Baku in terms of long straights punctuated by very tight technical uh, areas. And of course, it's a street circuit as well. So I, I think my money's on Ferrari for the next week. But then after that, who knows? I think it's anyone's game between those three teams. Well, yeah, I think the one the one sort of um, area that we need to look at with Ferrari is, of course, they are losing staff massively. Um, you know, you've got David Sanchez going to McLaren, so he's already on, on gardening leave, a very strong aerodynamicist he is. Then, of course, we have uh, the announcement that we revealed earlier this week, uh, or last week, that uh, Laurent Mekis is moving to, to Alpha Tauri as team principal. Uh, so there seems to be a lot of upheaval there. It's not easy for Fred Vasseur at the moment. You're quite correct that that uh, Carlos is not up to the level of of Charles Leclerc. So and you know to to finish second, you certainly need to have both cars challenging and in the points on a regular basis. And when I say points, I mean sort of top three, top four points. And Carlos seems to be battling there. So you know I think the the doors open for Aston Martin, assuming they can they can continue their development pace. I did say that I was at Aston Martin last week. I did speak to Luca Fabato, the engineering director. We will be publishing some of his comments uh, going forward. And certainly it is a very, very bullish atmosphere at Aston Martin at the moment. Very, very bullish. The number one team in Formula One is undoubtedly Red Bull. Michael, they did what we expected them to do uh, on the streets of Baku. Yeah, I mean, um, I think it's been pretty clear, Verstappen's alluded to this and the rest of the team have, that they have a better car on Sunday than they do on Saturday. And whenever they don't get pole position, they don't re- they don't really seem too concerned about it. I, th- I thought well, they only, I mean, Verstappen and Perez only got past Leclerc once the DRS was enabled, which was inevitable at Baku. And with that long straight and with the, the DRS and the potency of the DRS from Red Bull in particular, uh, I don't think there was any doubt that they were going to overtake. But I, I think if I were Ferrari, and Leclerc, I would be encouraged by the fact that before the DRS was enabled, uh, they weren't really making a lot of headway. They weren't they weren't really closing up to the back of, of the Ferraris in the toe. And there's an awful lot of toe to be had at Baku. Um, so a, a good, yeah, a very much a much better uh, weekend for Ferrari. Uh, Red Bull, as we expected, uh, dominating during the race, and uh, I think we can expect to see that again. Uh, during the race at Miami. But whether they get pole position, that remains to be seen. Verstappen didn't get pole last year. He was only third on the grid last year in Miami and it was uh, an all-Ferrari front row. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out next week. So moving on to the end of the race, uh, Dita, we had some difficult situation with Ocon doing his mandatory pit. Uh, absolutely. And frankly, what, what happened there was unacceptable, absolutely unacceptable. That said, I think it looked a lot more dramatic than it actually was. We do have a pit lane speed limit. We do have cars with excellent brakes. We do have a car that had braked from sort of 300 down to 100 coming into the uh, the pit lane. So, um, and also on television, your distances, particularly long pan shots, seem to be a bit foreshortened. But ultimately, what happened there is absolutely unacceptable. And um, I believe the FIA looks to need to look at those procedures very, very carefully because 
Yeah, we we dodged a bullet there yesterday, frankly. Yeah, the FIA have said that they're going to whether uh, well, they're going to update the procedures and review everything in time for Miami. Uh, but it, it should have been obvious to anyone who was following the race closely that this situation was going to happen because Ocon hadn't made a pit stop all race long. He'd started in the in the pit lane, so anyone who was following the race closely, as the FIA should have been, should have known that the, that Ocon would have been coming in. Otherwise, he would have been disqualified. The Sky commentary team actually alluded to this before it happened, um, saying that, you know, we've got people in the pit lane getting ready for Park Ferme and all the photographers, but Ocon's still got to come in. What's going on? So anyone could see that this was going to happen. Uh, somebody, uh, well, some people on, on social media likened it to Group B rallying in the 80s when you used to have spectators in the middle of the road and photographers and just seconds before the cars would come by, uh, they would uh, they would move out of the way. Um, but yeah, a very serious situation. Thankfully, as you said, Dieter, we, we dodged a bullet, but uh, yeah, definitely there needs to be steps taken to ensure that this won't happen again and to the, the, there needs to be tighter controls really over who can enter the pit lane and when and where that they can go. Well, all I can say is whoever said that, and I didn't see it about Group B rally uh, similarity, honestly, it was not on Group B rallies back in the day. Per, per chance, I was watching some Group B stuff yesterday and that was absolutely horrific. What we saw yesterday was mild by comparison. That's no excuse, but believe me, uh, that the, the Group B rally days, they were just incredible. Incre- I mean, idiotic. It's, it's that simple. But as I say, I, I don't think it was as dramatic in real terms as it appeared on TV because of the, the focus and whatever else, but still absolutely unacceptable. I've watched some videos on YouTube of, with that rallying and some of the drivers, they have, I think the best way to say is uh, big kahunas uh, with the, the, the speeds that they're going down the, down on the track. So uh, moving on to this weekend, Michael, what do you think we can expect from the Miami Grand Prix? Well, from one street circuit to another, um, so another another lot of uh, concrete uh, concrete walls, very very punishing, unforgiving confines. The layout, like I said, somewhat similar to Baku. We've got lots of long straights. We've got some slow, some extremely slow uh, technical sections at Miami. Um, it probably should suit Red Bull. Uh, well, I think every track should suit Red Bull, given how uh, given how good the RB19 is proving to be. But uh, Ferrari's top end speed, as we alluded to earlier looked pretty good in Baku and that should play very well on the long straights uh, of course Ferrari locked out the front row last year uh, even though Verstappen managed to win um, and it was quite interesting a few weeks ago we had some really really heavy downpours in Miami um, Sebastian Vettel brought the world's attention to this when uh, uh, when he wore that t-shirt ahead of the uh, the inaugural race last year saying that uh, Miami will be the first Grand Prix to take place underwater um, because of concerns about, uh, about climate change rain isn't yet forecast for this weekend, but uh, it would certainly shake things up if it were. And notable, um, something notable this weekend, it's going to be a very, very big weekend for Logan Sargent because he's born in Fort Lauderdale, about 30 miles down the road from Miami. So this is very much a home race. Uh, The Miami crowd and the US crowd finally have a a home driver to cheer on for the first time since 2015. We've got three races in America this year, and I'm sure Logan Sargent and the American public are going to be really, really looking forward to each of them. And of course, we also have a situation where his team is owned by Doralton Capital, which is New York based and uh, just up the road. So, you know, all in, it's it's a very big. And then we have the Gene Haas and, and Günther Steiner uh, consolation. So, uh, yeah, a, a big weekend for the Americans. Certainly looking forward to it. Talking about the first Grand Prix held underwater. Of course, one of the ironies last year was that we had yachts, a display of yachts on concrete <laughs> at a Grand Prix that Sebastian was saying was going to be the first one under 
underwater. But yeah, there you go. That's that's the US for you. As we said, we are racing in Florida this weekend. So Dieter, Michael and I will be back next week to preview the Miami Grand Prix. And I'll be talking to you from another car again, because when we do the podcast, I'll actually be on, on the road from, from Miami to the airport. So <laughs> I'll catch you from some car somewhere, some services in the US at some stage next week. Look forward to it. We'll see you then. <laughs>